Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Well, hey, welcome back, everyone. It's so great to have you with us, especially if you're new with us. So, so glad you could join us this morning. We're going to turn now to look together at God's Word because we believe that through his word that God wants to speak to us, that he wants to encourage us, and that he wants to meet with us today. And so we're gonna turn now to look at God's word. Now I'm leading the service, but I'm actually on vacation and study leave until the end of July. And so I've invited a dear friend to join us and to bring the message this morning, Greg Gansel. And if you don't know Greg, he's one of the leaders in our congregation. He is on our church council, and he's also a professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, and so that means he's a little bit smart, but he also has just an amazing heart for God and for his people. And so I just know you're gonna be blessed, we're gonna be encouraged today. But with that said, let me now pass it over to Greg. It's really great to be here this morning um, with you, even if it is virtual. Um, We are living, as Michael has said, in very complicated times. Not only is there the pandemic, but we've had quite a bit of social unrest. Some people are saying that that this is probably the greatest social unrest we've had since 1968. And of course, 1968 was a pivotal year. I remember it pretty well. I was 11 and there were um, lots of racial uh, unrest, there was the Vietnam War, and and that period of unrest really lasted for about four years, from about 1967 to 1971. But, But since that time, we have probably not been in a situation as dramatic as the one we are in now. Now, so when we encounter these times of social unrest, it, it can be tempting to think that, that this is uh, unprecedented, this is the end, but our culture um, actually ebbs and flows. There are risings and there are subsidings of deep and important issues and troubles. What I want to do is take a minute and look a little bit deeper at our cultural phenomena at what uh, underlies um, many of the issues that pop up from time to time. And, and the metaphor I'm going to use, I, I get from a friend of mine who I worked with in Connecticut at the Rivendell Institute, and he articulated a metaphor of the fault lines of contemporary culture. Right, so when you think about a fault line, there are various features that come to play. For example, there are distinct sides in a fault line, and there's always movement, activity in different directions. There's a, there's a pressure between the tectonic plates. Sometimes the pressure builds up and there are sudden shifts. And fault lines are more or less permanent. These things underlie a lot of the surface activity that we find in our uh, geography and our geology. So it's a great metaphor for deep um, underlying features of our culture. Now, there are two things that are true of fault lines of culture that we have to keep in mind. First, the fault lines shape how we feel and think about the world and how we engage the world. Secondly, we have to bring the gospel to bear on these fault lines of culture. And how many are there? 
Well, there's probably um, maybe a, up to a dozen, but there are four in particular I want to point out, and then we're going to spend the morning talking about one. The first fault line is authority, right? The second is the self. What does it mean to be a human being? How do I relate to myself? Third, freedom. What is it that makes a human being free? And fourth is the future. There are probably other fault lines, but these are the ones that, that shape how we engage the world. Our sense of what authority is or what the self is, what the self ought to be, what constitutes freedom and how we should engage the future um, is an underlying feature of, of our culture. There's a lot of activity, and these things are always part of where there is disagreement and movement and disruption. I, I, I find it's a great metaphor for these things. This morning, we're going to talk about authority, right? That's the fault line. The first question is, why do we hate authority, right? You've seen this bumper sticker, question authority. It's a very popular expression, right? And we have this instinctive thought that it, it's important to question authority. Um, whenever I see this bumper sticker, I kind of say, well, who are you to tell me to question authority, right? You know, what makes you an authority over me? But it, it just uh, reveals our complicated uh, relationship to authority. We're highly suspicious, and we, we withhold um, assent to authority as, as much as we can, Yet, on the other hand, we all follow authorities. Authority is perennial. It's a constant feature of our uh, culture, and it's always a constant feature of every time and every people group. So some of the questions that emerge about authority include who or what has authority. Authority to speak. Who has authority to speak? Who has authority to declare how things are? And when we ask these questions, we can see that authority is related to knowledge. What counts as knowledge? Who has authority to tell us what is true? Now, for the whole history of Christianity, um, Christianity was considered a knowledge tradition that we knew how the world was, we knew what God was like, we knew what human beings were like because of what God has done for us in Christ and how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. In the last couple of hundred years, the, the position of Christianity as a knowledge tradition has been eroded. And now it's considered, perhaps the best phrase which comes from Dallas Willard is it's considered a faith tradition. And a faith tradition is something other than a knowledge tradition. Faith more has to do with the internal and the subjective and maybe my warm feelings about life. But Christianity is no longer considered authoritative in the realm of knowledge. So who does have authority to tell us what is true? And to be honest, today in our culture, there's a big battle over this. Is it the shaman or the scientist? Is it the musician, an artist, or is it the journalist? Where is authority to speak truth found in our culture? But authority has to do with things other than knowledge, right? It has to do with cultural status. 
what matters? What or who must be accounted for? Who makes the opinions about what is important? What opinion makers matter? We see this a lot in what we tend to call popular culture. If you look at the magazines, so on the picture I have Forbes, the 70 most powerful people. Right? These are the opinion makers that matter, or so the magazine would like us to believe, or People Magazine, the 100 most beautiful people. Right? And they, they, of course, these beautiful people are only found in the ranks of celebrity. And, and so the magazine is articulating the opinion makers who matter are the actors, the act actresses, and other popular people. There's a cultural authority governing what is true, but also what is good, what is valuable. What should I want? What should I want my life to be? What is important? And on the other hand, there's a cultural authority about what does not matter. What is, as is often said, whatever. In other words, it doesn't matter at all. So you can see that authority is, is a foundational cultural fault line. And in every context, historically, a culture has a battle about authority. Now, we're conflicted with authority because, as I said, we're suspicious of it. But we also follow authority almost without knowing it. Now, if we, if we think about authority in our culture and as a fundamental bedrock of every culture, this helps us read the scriptures with new eyes. Because authority is one of the dominant themes of the Gospels. Now, there are, there are many ways we can read the scriptures, and, and, and they're all fruitful in different ways. One, one picture that helps me discern two different ways to read the scripture has to do with art. And there's a kind of art called scrimshaw. And uh, unless you spend time in New England, you might not know what scrimshaw is, but it's a very intricate carving on whale bones. It became popular when there was a strong whaling industry in, on, on the coast of New England. And you can still find scrimshaw where it's very intricate, detailed carving. And, there, and that's one way we can read the scripture. We can analyze the context and, and look at the grammar of certain statements in scripture and unpack the meaning of the claims of scripture. And I, I find that very fruitful. But there's another kind of art that's watercolor. And in a watercolor, there aren't this, uh, these distinctions that are precise. The colors kind of flow into one another. It's, a, it's a more of a sweeping a panoramic vista of, of, a, of a landscape. And, and that's another way to read the scripture. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a sweeping look through scriptures, select passages um, about how Jesus has authority. In fact, we're going to look at 10 examples of the authority of Jesus. And to be honest, um, I could have probably found 50 in the Gospels, right? I just started to go randomly, mostly in the Gospel of Luke, because I just finished reading Daryl Bach's commentary on the Gospel of Luke, which is a wonderful experience. And, and I'm pulling randomly where Jesus explains or expresses his authority. So the first scripture, Luke chapter 4, 31 to 32. 
And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. So Jesus' teaching had authority. He had authority to teach the people. And all through the scriptures, this comes up where his teaching is contrasted with the religious leaders who did not seem to teach with authority. Second passage, Luke chapter four. This follows right after teaching with authority. The next few verses, Jesus has authority over unclean spirits. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Jesus has the authority over the unclean spirits. In Luke chapter five, we see he has authority to forgive sins. And this is the story of the paralytic where the men lead the paralytic, lower him down through the roof to get him into the presence of Jesus. And in verse 20, Luke writes, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus proved that he had the authority to forgive sins by healing this man. Fourth, in the next chapter of Luke, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Fifth, in Luke chapter seven, Jesus demonstrates authority over death. Starting in verse 11, soon after he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus has authority over death. And we see this in a couple of different times, right? He raises Lazarus. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And of course, 
Jesus' authority over death here foreshadows his conquering of death in the cross. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the natural world. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. So Jesus demonstrates his authority over the natural world. And I think there's something in particular about authority over the sea, because in in Jewish culture, the sea is where the chaos was. If we read some of the Old Testament, we see that's where the monsters live, the behemoth in the book of Job. And, and it was untamable. So it was not just the natural world, but the most chaotic part of the natural world is what Jesus demonstrates his authority over. Seventh, in Luke 19, Jesus demonstrates authority over the temple. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus has authority over the house of God to cleanse it, to purify it, to to call it back to its original purpose. So already we see just time and time again, Jesus is demonstrating his authority Right? And of course, uh, uh, an underlying theme that comes up is that this is where the conflict is in the ministry of Jesus, the conflict over authority. So in Luke chapter 20, we read that one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up to him and said, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So there's, there's, you can read in the scripture that there's an increasing tension as the gospels go forward over the very issue of authority. And this is what leads to the cross, right? The last two passages I want to look at are, are um, not from the gospels, but they're reflecting on Jesus' cosmic authority. So in Colossians chapter one, Jesus has authority from the beginning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For he is 
before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus has authority not because he seized it or because he saw an opportunity, but he had authority from the beginning as the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is rightfully over all things. So from the beginning, Jesus had authority. And in Ephesians chapter one, we see that God has given him authority to the end. And Paul is in the middle of a long sentence here, and he's talking about the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So notice in the Colossians passage that that Jesus is the creator of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority. And in the Ephesians passage, in the ascension, when Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, he is given the place above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. So from beginning to end, Jesus has cosmic authority. This has always been true. And and while he walked on earth, he demonstrated this authority. So it's time for us to think about the authority of Jesus for us today. It is helpful for me to do this kind of sweeping look at the scriptures. It reminds me of a very small fact that I should not forget, which is, yes, Jesus has authority. He has authority over everything. So sometimes skimming through these passages reminds me that that. He has authority over life and death and the natural world and the supernatural world. He's the originator and ruler of all things, and all things are for him and put under his feet, which is why Paul writes that that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither life nor death nor principalities, nothing can separate us from his love because Jesus has authority. So what does this mean for us? I think uh, there are three things. First, it's important to think about in the Gospels how people responded as Jesus demonstrated his authority. And usually they responded with two things, praise to God and fear. So Jeannie and I were talking about this this week, and Jeannie made the comment that fear is the appropriate response to power. So there's two kinds of fears that correspond to two kinds of powers, right? There's being afraid of something. Uh, When someone has power over us, we can be afraid of what that person will do. When we're in a dangerous situation in nature, for example, in a storm, in a boat, we can be afraid of the power of the storm because we are frightened of what might happen to us. And this is because the power is wielded by something that does not have our best interest in mind. Either it's the natural world or supernatural forces that are against us, or the power is wielded by finite, fallen, sinful people. Even if they are doing the best that they can, we, we fear power being held over us 
when that power is held by sinful people. There is, in a sense, good reason to fear what might happen in this kind of situation. But if power and authority is united to perfect goodness and love, our fear is different. We don't fear what might happen. We aren't afraid of what Jesus might do to us as if he's going to harm us. But we respond in, in what, what is in the Proverbs described as the fear of the Lord, right? And some people try to explain the fear of the Lord as being respect or reverence. And I think that's true, but insufficient. Because I can respect somebody from a distance and that person might not even know I respect that person. And um, so the fear of the Lord is something, uh, I think, deeper and more gripping. It's not being afraid of what God might do to me, but it's being, being overwhelmed by his power and love and authority such that I have an overwhelming desire to please him. So a friend of mine once said, the fear of the Lord is contrasted in Jesus' words with the fear of human beings. Jesus says, don't fear people, but fear God. What happens when I fear people? It's not that I'm always afraid that they're going to hurt me, but I, I have this propensity to seek and desire their approval. I want the approval of people. That's the fear of man or the fear of other human beings. And, and the same kind of thing happens with God. The fear of the Lord is a, a deep, motivating desire for the approval of God. And if that's the fear of the Lord, then that's our response when we see Jesus demonstrating his authority. Who is this person that even the wind and the waves obey him? I want to make sure that I am walking closely with him. So first we think about the response, the response of praise to God and fear. Second, there are, it's often the case that I welcome the authority of Jesus. And this is important for me, right? Jesus has authority to break the chains of disease and anxiety and hopelessness and fear. And I welcome that authority. In fact, I pray, Lord, come here in your authority and break these chains. He has the authority to call people to repentance. There is not one person who is beyond the call of Jesus. Jesus has the authority to answer our prayers. And we have the authority to pray because he told us to. He invites us to bring all of our concerns to him. Jesus has the authority to bring a revival that will revitalize our nation. And I had to be reminded of his authority because sometimes um, I act like in my prayer life and in my posture in the world that I hope Jesus escapes unscathed from the complexities of our culture. But being reminded of his authority helps me think, no, he has the authority to answer my prayer. He has the authority to reshape our, our national ethos towards love and justice and patience and goodness. And I have to pray in that direction. So I welcome the authority of Jesus. But there's another side to this coin. I, I'm also prone to resist the authority of Jesus. Because Jesus has the authority to do things 
that I simply don't like. Jesus has the authority to allow pain and suffering in my life, even when I don't understand what it's for. He is the ruler of all. He has authority over life and death and sickness and health. And he has the authority to allow me to experience suffering. I resist that. Jesus has the authority to change my plans and overturn my deeply ingrained assumptions about my life. Whether it's my career, he can change that. He has that authority. Where I live, whether I'm healthy or not, we talked about. How my family is doing. Jesus has the authority to turn over my assumptions and make me uncomfortable. And I resist his authority there. Also, Jesus has the authority to bring our nation down. He's done this in the past. He will continue to do it in the future. There are certain nations that are raised up for a certain time, and then they are brought down. I mean, if we think about our Old Testament history, we see this not just among the people of God, but how, how God raised up and brought down what we, what we call these nations outside of the covenant of God, Assyria and Babylonia. And Jesus has the authority to bring our nation down. One of my deep assumptions that needs renovation under the authority of Jesus is that I place too high a value on um, our nation. Now, I'm glad to be an American. I love it. It's, it's a, a, a tremendous privilege. I've had opportunities because of that. But God can bring the nation down. It is his prerogative. So a couple of things to remember. One is the authority of Jesus is from beginning to end over every power and stronghold that works in the universe. Secondly, the authority of Jesus is united to perfect goodness and love. Remembering these things helps me respond. It helps me respond um, in the words of a song Dave Horner wrote about 40 years ago, to hold my life with an open hand. To hold, I can hold my life with an open hand before God because he has all authority and his authority is united to perfect goodness, and love. I can learn to pray, and this is the process. I can learn to pray in Jesus' own words, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we are amazed at your authority over everything and how you demonstrated this time and time again as you walked with us, how you continue to demonstrate this through your Holy Spirit, through the church, that you raise people up, you protect them, you, you answer prayer, you break strongholds, but you also allow suffering and, and um, changes of plans and disrupting our comfort for your own good purposes. We, we ask you, to help us hold our lives with an open hand and to pray as we journey through the difficult parts, not my will, but your will. We ask this in the name that's above every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the name of Jesus, amen.